Good morning and welcome to Jew in the City Speaks with your host, Allison Josephs, also known as Jew in the City. Usually what we do on the show is talk about uh, Orthodox Jews in the media, um, talk about, you know, um, Orthodox Jews who are up to good things. Sometimes we critique the media and talk about, uh, you know, feeling upset that they continue to depict us in stereotypical or negative ways. Um, and something that has sort of emerged, uh, I would say, in the last few years in the work that we do at Jew in the City um, is more than just sort of the perception of Orthodox Jews in the media. It's actually the experience of Orthodox Jews in real life. Um, and that's our Makom branch. Um, we are serving people who grew up um, in this religious lifestyle, and um, they did not have the positive experiences that people like me and my friends and family have had. Um, they had some really negative um, and dysfunctional and abusive experiences. And what we've come to see over time is that essentially what seems to happen is that these stories of dysfunction and abuse are real. Um, people leave after having bad experiences. They believe their dysfunctional experiences are Judaism itself, are the Jewish people themselves. They take these stories to the media, which then amplifies these stories of dysfunction as if they are normative uh, experiences in our community. Um, and that only sort of uh, incites anti-Semitism, you know, sort of brings, uh, I think, a lot of shame and negativity um, upon our people and upon our way of life. Um, and something that I would say really unlocked a lot of understanding for the experience of the Mako members who are disenfranchised from the community um, is this book that uh, was recommended to me by our PsyD on staff, Ben Madsen. It's called The Emotionally Absent Mother, uh, The uh, Invisible Effects of Childhood Emotional Neglect. I think I got that right. It's by Jasmine Lee Corey. Um, and I'm so delighted that we are actually talking with her today because um, this book has just been so impactful in understanding um, major patterns that our 250 members, um, you know, I haven't spoken to every single one of them, but many of them uh, show, um, and I think really unlocking a lot of um, sort of information for themselves and helping to sort of clarify the difference between uh, dysfunction and, you know, what a normative positive religious experience would be. So um, Jasmine, thank you so much for, uh, for joining us today. Hey, it's my pleasure. Um, and I was saying to you before the show, um, with the number of times that I've been recommending this book, um, people might think that I'm getting a cut. I am not. Um, I, I'm really just recommending it because um, I've found it so helpful. It's been helpful to someone close to me. Um, it's been helpful to so many members. And even off of these platforms, um, I think there, you know, I think let's just like start with just jumping into, you know, kind of your, your major thesis of the book. I'd heard of emotional abuse. I'd heard of neglect. I'd never heard before of childhood emotional neglect. So can you, you know, kind of start off explaining to us what this phenomenon is? Yes. So when we used to hear of neglect, it was really only about physical neglect, you know, that you didn't have adequate clothing or home or food, something like that. But, you know, we're recognizing so much more which I think is a much bigger problem of emotional neglect, where um, you don't have the pieces that you need as, as a child to develop a healthy sense of self. You don't have uh, the emotional uh, aspects of, uh, of being parented well. And so um, I know I think the sort of surprising part of this is that there are loving parents who work very hard to do their job well, 
And yet they're still missing some of the major pieces of parenting a child um, without emotionally neglecting them. Am, am I right on, on that? Uh, absolutely, absolutely. And so we need to understand two things implied in your question. One is what parenting really involves, you know, a whole lot. It's the biggest job on the planet, I think. And uh, um, um, we have to be able to be healthy humans ourselves where uh, you know, we're, we're not jammed up in some way. We can be emotionally present and giving. Mm. And, and a lot of people are emotionally absent mothers, either situationally, you know, they're stretched too thin, you know, yeah, they're working all the time, um, have too many kids, maybe. Yeah, um, or, or, you know, they find it difficult to be emotionally present because they didn't have anybody who was emotionally present with them or, or they come from a family with a history of trauma. Right? Which by the way, speaks to the vast majority of the, um, the members that we're dealing with. These are people that are nearly 100% descendants of Holocaust survivors, sort of um, growing, growing up in a very insular world with very little mixing. So that's not a surprising result um, of uh, Holocaust effect. Absolutely. So, so somebody who's coming from that kind of history would need to have worked through it quite fully to be fully present as a parent, as a partner, you know, as a friend in, in any way and working through trauma. And even if it's a second generational kind of thing, it's not an easy process. So we're dealing with, at this point, I would say third generation trauma um, and still not, I think not enough people have dealt with the mental health issues. I think so many of them um, have either had parents that just sort of, or grandparents that shut down, that just didn't talk about anything, that just lost touch with their emotions completely. Um, Another example that we heard was um, over positivity. So everything is great. Everything is perfect. Kind of like Hitler's not going to destroy us. And so um, this one woman we spoke to who actually developed an emotional regulation curriculum for um, very insular Hasidic schools to teach children how to get in touch with the full range of their emotions, which is a wonderful um, sort of outcome of this because she realized she never had access to anger or sadness. There was a responsibility in her home to always appear that things were just fine as a way to sort of cope with um, you know, things being not fine. Yeah, well, that's exactly, it has to be seen as that way, as that. It's a way to cope. It's a way to minimize how painful it is. You know, um, it's, it's not a full um, strategy for living a healthy life. For sure. A big part, once we sort of unpack what, you know, the childhood emotional neglect is, the next part of your book talks about these good mother messages. Uh, can you give us some examples and sort of like what the framework of good mother messages are about? Yeah, well, these are messages that a child, uh, you know, should get, right? And uh, they may be spoken, but more likely they're, they're given, uh, they're what are communicated through actions. And we always believe the nonverbals more than the words. Because people can kind of fake the words, 
So there are things like, you know, I'm glad you're here. I'm glad you're you. You know, I love you. I respect you. I'll be here for you. These are, are the things that uh, become part of a, a healthy foundation for a child. I just so I've listed I some, but I also said in working with these, it's not that there is this particular list. We, we need to feel into what were the things I needed to hear. What we found also uh, working with our population um, is that the sort of the good mother messages that make people emotional are generally the messages that we're missing when someone yes. gets sort of triggered by that. And I'll give you an example because I think um, for people that had these um, good mother messages either spoken or um, they felt them, it's sort of hard to fathom not growing up with this. But one of our members asked me um, about what does it mean like for someone to delight in you? what would that look like experientially? So I had to explain, it would be like you walk into the room and someone's face, face lights up, they see you yes. and they smile. They, yes. um, and, and I think, you know, it's so, it's so terribly painful for someone to not even know what that experience might be like because they haven't experienced it from their parents. Um, and again, you can very easily see, um, let's say the great grandparents uh, lost their first set of children in the Holocaust and then had to start over from scratch. I heard so many cases where they just couldn't attach to their next set of kids. They were too afraid yes. of losing all over yes. again. So they just kept the next sort of the second family, family 2.0 um, sort of further away. And yes. the, uh, the destruction from this uh, sort of knows no end. Um, and so this is so elucidating. Um, and so the next form is, or the next thing you sort of talk about is lack of uh, good mother messages cause different forms of insecure attachment. So can you explain the difference between secure attachment versus insecure attachment? Yeah, well, uh, with secure attachment, you know, you can rest, you, you, you trust that person's going to be there. Not 100%, nobody's 100%, but for the most part, and they want to be. And, you know, it helps you feel comfortable and able to, you know, lean in relationship, uh, you know, reflects on your sense of self, all kinds of things. Insecure attachment is when you don't have that, you know, and, uh, um, you know, I have a chapter about the types of insecure attachment. Maybe I'll just talk about the two most common for a moment. You know, one is, and it's kind of what you were describing, of those who lost their children, and it was too painful to attach again. So the self, what I call self-sufficient style, is when, you know, you kind of keep people a little bit at arm's length, because um, you don't trust your needs will be met, and you carry a deep pain about attachment. So you 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 know you live to take care of yourself. That's you know why I think self-sufficient is a good term for it. The other is kind of the flip side of what we think of as insecure. You know, kind of clingy, uh, uh, need reassurance, don't want the partner or parent or whoever it is to go away. You know, have difficulty being alone. Hmm. Uh, um, so, you know, in neither of these are, are we comfortably kind of embedded in 
a, a relationship that feels good and holds us. Hmm. Um, and this is a pretty prevalent uh, situation in terms of insecure attachment. You quote a study in your book. I kind of memorized your book. 38% of Americans are lacking secure attachment. Did I get that right? Yeah, I, I don't know what it would be right now, but I okay. think that, you know, it's a huge, huge uh, problem. More people than not, I think, are insecurely hmm. attached. And, hmm. and, you know, that were not fully parented, you know, that has some kind of emotional neglect. I want to take a moment and comment on when you said people would say, well, gee, the light, what would that feel like? You know, one of the saddest things I found is that those people uh, that I worked with directly or I interviewed for the book, you know, beforehand, um, it, it wasn't that they might be missing one or two of those good mother messages. If they were missing them, they were often missing the whole shebang. Yep. Yeah, we find that also with a lot. I mean, if there's some exceptions, but a lot of people that we're working with are also reporting to be missing um, all of them or most of them. Um, what about um, lack of being aware of this or sort of um, avoidance or sort of getting triggered by the topic? Another response that we've seen is instead of people um, kind of recognizing that they experience this or, um, you know, being ready to deal with it or face it. Instead, they become full of rage and sort of want to silence the conversation and, you know, blame, shame, um, not go there. Like what, what, why, why do some people do that as opposed to either, you know, recognizing it or being honest about what happened? Yeah, well, uh, it takes a lot of support. And it takes a lot of emotional maturity to be able to be honest about what happened. So uh, um, I, I don't think we can expect people to go there right away. Mm -hmm. Right? Yeah. Um, that, you know, what you described, the rage, the annoyance, you know, these are different kinds of defenses, protections. It's saying that's too much. I don't want to go there, right? And it may take some, just like good mothering, some consistent holding, reflecting of their feelings, like even to say, you know, wow, this topic is a really difficult one for you, you know? If we're people to, to slowly settle down, begin to trust, you would begin to maybe through others in this group situation, understand it's okay that you have these, you know, feelings or experiences, you know, feeling unloved or something. And, you know, to, to, to slowly be willing to approach the topic. And, um, you know, this is obviously for anyone listening that's becoming triggered, they may think, oh no, how do I help myself? So I would re recommend getting her book, getting a therapist, um, one of the methods that you talk about in part of the healing process is self-parenting. So can you kind of walk us through the overview of, yeah, of how, what that looks like? Yeah. So self-parenting is premised on the idea that we still have parts of us that um, carry child-like needs and emotions. We could call them child parts. We could call them child states. 
you know, it's kind of like we have an inner child, what it's been called for decades, or I think more commonly, inner children. There's not just one, but there are many. So these are states that are often kind of frozen in time. And again, they exist that way because, you know, there hasn't been the support really for them to to be more part of the whole, right? So, so um, if you have child states, you know, your options are to ignore the child, just like maybe you were ignored, so pass on the wound, keep going with the wound, find somebody to hopefully kind of hand the child off to, <laughs> which is not really that fair and has some challenges to it. Or you can say, hey, maybe I can learn to do this. I can learn. There's an adult part of me that can learn to be a good mother to these child parts of me. And so I talk about the process of doing that. You know, that too is not something a role we're going to step right into, but but have to warm up to, have to go through our own things. Maybe we start with, heck, I don't know how to do that. I don't have a clue, right? Or I feel kind of guilty, and now I know there's a child inside me, and I've ignored it, her, right? So you know that's going to be a process too, but. To show the, the child, I'll just say singular for the simplicity sake, sake um, I care about you. I want to develop a relationship with you. I'd like to see if I can help you, be of help to you. You deserve that. You deserved it then and you deserve it now. And I'm going to do my best. Mm-hmm. So a, a whole relationship has to develop and trust develops. So there has to be communication between the adult part of you, and we would even say a particular adult part of you that takes on this nurturing role, parenting role, and child parts. So I, I mean, that's so interesting because I was just sort of thinking about going straight into the good mother messages, but it makes so much sense. Every relationship needs that introduction. Let's get to know each other. I would like to help you. So. I'll tell you the other thing that we come up and see, um, you know, sort of members uh, reporting is this sense of shame um, that how pathetic is it that I have no one but me to help me? Um, Is that something that you've seen before? And then I had this idea that I've also just been dying to discuss with you. I think the reason why I'm so drawn to this is that I found every single one of your good mother messages within Jewish sources, within the Jewish Bible. And, um, and you talk about in your book, um, sort of the archetypal uh, good mother, whether it's, you know, mother nature as the secular perspective, mother Mary um, in the Christian perspective. So the Jewish perspective is that God actually has a feminine side, the Shrina, um, that really acts in this role of nurturer, um, surrounder, protector. And I went through and found literally every good mother message. I see you, you know, um, I'm here for you. You can rest in me. Um, So I guess my question is, A, how do we deal with people feeling full of shame that they're all they've got? And B, could a person sort of speak to themselves, you know, sort of with God's good mother messages? Um, And then sort of C, 
what if the people I'm referring to were given really uh, terrifying messages about God that they were raised to believe that God himself is a, a monster and a terrorizer. So do you have any thoughts about how to deal yeah. with shame? Using yeah. God but, as your good yeah. God mother message. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So with one at a time. So first of all, you know, the shame, we want to see it's continuing, you know, the kind of emotional flavor that's already here. It's blaming the victim. Right? It's saying, you know, it's your fault. And of course, there's a natural tendency to want to look outside. And, you know, it's difficult for people to stop um, valuing outside support more than their own internal support. But, but you know, really, is to have your own love be seen by yourself is the most intimate and precious thing. So, um, you know, uh, unfortunate, we want to see shame. Uh, uh, you're just tangled up in the same in the same stuff. There's no shame. It's not your fault that, that, that there weren't others, right? Or may not be others right now. But can you give you you? Right? So, um, to, to realize it's a very precious resource. And, you know, we don't want to, in a sense, indulge that shame. Mm-hmm. That's just, again, it's being in a rut. Okay. So, um, great. You know, you can use the kind of divine mother, uh, divine feminine part of God to, to help you get a sense to model that, to say, I want to incorporate that. And I, you know, I don't know so much about your tradition, but, you know, in the book I talked about, the the child often internalizes a sense of mom. I'm like that too, right? And so, you know, from a sometimes called dualistic perspective, you could say, I'm like that too with God. Or from a, what's sometimes called non-dualistic perspective, you can say, and that is part of me already because I'm, you know, part of the divine. Okay, so there's that issue, and then uh, what was it about terrifying? The lesson being ter- being terrified by God. It's sort of it's kind of like they're getting it on every end. They got the bad messaging from the parents, and then they got um, the bad messaging from which which, in my view, I think really what it is is that. The good mother messages are actually God's messages to us as human beings, but dysfunctional people block them, block those natural messages from the divine. So we can't read them. So we get these blocked messages, you know, from God, and then we get a blocked message about God himself. So I don't know if you have any thoughts about how you. Yeah, I would say a distorted message, a -hmm. distorted image. And of course, psychology for a long time has said, you know, we project onto our image of God you know, stuff from our own, you know, background. So, you know, kind of a stern, um, unforgiving God, you know, that's a projection. Don't you think God is a little more than that? So I would say another element of Holocaust is all these people slaughtered and then sort of the survivors saying there must be a monster up there that allowed our whole world to be destroyed. So again, um, just 
so much pain and so much, uh, I mean, not a surprise, but I think um, it's so important that we unpack these different issues. Um, just a couple you know, more minutes left here. Why do we not hear more about this type of work, the inner child work? I know people that have been in therapy for years, their therapist never touched inner child work. And when they started to read your book, just to give you another compliment, I actually saw one of our members, we were talking and her inner child like came out in front of me. Like I, I asked her just sort of a conversation about your book. I was not doing therapy. I'm not a therapist. When was the first time that you felt like your mother wasn't there for you emotionally? And she switched sort of into that stage of her life and started crying. And I saw like this child emerge and now she's begun doing inner child work with her therapist and is making a lot of you know progress where she wasn't able to even access this pain before. So why are so many therapists not going to this place? Yeah, well, you know, there are actually hundreds of different forms of therapy. And I think therapists, they gravitate to what resonates with them and what works for their setting and population. So you were saying about um, that different therapists do not use, uh, th th there's different sort of methods that, that therapists use. There's hundreds of different sort of modalities in therapy. Yeah, right. And so especially if they're, if they're trying to do a short-term kind of therapy, this doesn't really fit. You know, uh, um, you know if they're, you know, have a particular long-term psychoanalytic, you know, orientation or something, you know, they may not quite go this way, but they could. Like the, the example you just gave, apparently that therapist did change. Right. Mm -hmm. But I would say that um, for the people in your membership, it would be good to ask therapists, you know, do you have experience with this kind of work? Could you help me with this work? And to think it can go both places. It could be happening in the therapy session. But then, of course, you want it to be happening at home. You've got to keep growing yourself as a good mother. Beautiful. Amazing. I just want to say this. Um, I didn't say all the words in your title of your book before. So in closing, I'm going to read every single word now. Uh, I trusted myself too much. I think maybe I have too much secure attachment in trusting myself. Uh, it's the emotionally absent mother, how to recognize and heal the invisible effects of childhood emotional neglect by Jasmine Lee Corey. Um, it's truly a, a remarkable book. Um, it has been so insightful uh, for so many of our Monaco members. Um, and um, we just, you know, are, are so grateful for uh, the work that you've done in, you know, kind of pulling out these different issues, you know, sort of figuring them out. Um, I know you have more than one edition of it. So you went back to the drawing board and you edited it and made it better. And um, it's really such an important work. Um, and we, uh, you know, we wish you continued success in uh, continuing to heal people and, and all those children that need um, some love and some care. Yeah, well, thank you. And I, I don't know if others are in real time watching this. I see there's a number of the chat, you know, if there are questions or something, just to say, you know, I'd be happy to come back and continue the conversation sometime if you wish. Oh, so we would love for you to speak uh, to our members directly. That would be incredible because you're, uh, you know, kind of someone that they've been reading now uh, in sort of this uh, book setting for, for quite some time. So I think to be able to access you directly would be uh a tremendous opportunity. So thank you so much for that generous offer. Okay. And, uh, and thank you so much for listening. You can catch us same time, same place next week. Bye-bye.